There was a time our happiness seemed never ending. I was so sure that where we were heading was right. Life was a road so certain and straight and unbending. Our little road with never a crossroad in sight. Back in the days when we spoke in civilized voices, women in white and sturdy young men at the oar. Back in the days when I let you make all my choices. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, May 10th, 2020. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at FileSpotPhoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So also, uh, CastAlbumReviews.com... Uh, not a lot of stuff coming out these days, but we wanted to talk a little bit about Larry Kurtz sings Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> we do. I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As I may have mentioned, I recently, not that long ago, uh, before all of this craziness started, I got a turntable and a bunch of LPs from a friend of mine. Oh, yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, it's really, it's the equivalent, I guess, the oral equivalent of comfort food (laughs) just because I hadn't had a turntable in like 35 years or so uh, or any LPs and there's just something about it um, that I mean in in my case that I associate with my childhood so it just makes me feel so good (laughs) to play LPs uh, at a time like this Um, I I don't know I'm not you know I, I think it's interesting that apparently a lot of young people have been getting into them as well. Uh, and uh, and so I, I don't know exactly what that's all about because it's not nostalgia in their case, but I just think that's great. Anyway, um, one of the albums I got from my friend is called Larry Kurt Sings Leonard Bernstein, and it's on a label I've never even heard of before called Seco Records. Uh-huh. Yeah, S-E-C-O, right. Oh, yeah. yeah, it says New York, <laughs> New York. Um and this, uh, it's, I don't know the exact date here, but it's like 57 or 58, I, I guess, uh, or maybe a little later because uh, of Library of Congress says 1959. Oh, ah. 59. All right. Well, actually, that makes sense because um, what, I'm, history, yeah. what I'm about to read, uh, this album has liner notes by Stephen Sondheim. And as I said before we started recording, this may be the last time he ever did that because I know in in more recent years he has said that he gets constant requests to write uh, things like that and uh, notes for programs and things like that. But he feels he has to turn them down because he says if he does one, then he has to do them all and he just doesn't have the time. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, so I thought that these are probably of historical significance And so I thought I would read them because they're not too long. What Sondheim writes is, 
When I first saw Larry Kurt perform, he was singing the lead in No More Mambo, a musical about juvenile delinquent gangs. That was in Tamament, PA, uh, a resort in the Pocono Mountains, and it was years ago. Today, Larry Kurt is singing the lead in West Side Story, a musical about juvenile delinquent gangs. This mm-hmm. is on Broadway. <laughs> this is on Broadway, a resort in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> and it's still a going strong, meaning the show. Uh, the wheels of the gods grind slowly. In the intervening years, Larry has sung in musicals on television, in industrial shows, and on records. With each successive performance, his voice grows stronger, his personality sharper, his confidence surer. He is the best singer of two, four times since Judy Garland. Wow. Uh, in parentheses, something's coming. Uh, he can sing a ballad with subtle simplicity, Maria. And he can sing in an easy swinging style with no effort at all, lucky to be me. Versatile is the word. Uh, Versatile is also the word for Leonard Bernstein. Up ballads, it's Mm -hmm. love. Art songs, it must be me. Nostalgic satire, Ohio. Blues ballads, Lonely Town. And Begins Tonight. Each has its own perfection, its own personal and unique expressivity. Five days before West Side Story opened out of town, Lenny and I decided we needed a song to introduce Tony, the character that Larry plays in the show. We wrote Something's Coming, and we wrote it in only one day because the combination of character and performer, the image of Larry Kurt as Tony was so vivid. It was the quickest written song in the score and one of the best. And parenthetically, I, 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 brought that song up a couple of weeks ago. I just think it's an an absolute mini masterpiece. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And Sondheim ends by saying, the right singer and the right song, a rare combination. But once a combination is found, the result is exhilarating, and the result is Larry Kurtz sings Leonard Bernstein. And then on the right, uh, there's a tiny little paragraph. It says, about Stephen Sondheim. (laughs) <laughs> and it says, so imagine 1959, Mr. Sondheim, besides having collaborated as lyricist with Mr. Bernstein on West Side Story, has another smash hit running on Broadway today in Gypsy. Mm. Stephen Sondheim graduated as a music major from Williams College. He has built a varied backlog of credits, including doing background music for two Broadway plays mm-hmm. and also writing the music for the first six months of the television series Topper, mm. in addition to his two present Broadway credits. Um, Now, for what it's worth, IBDB lists one of those plays as The Girls of Summer in uh, 1956, Mm -hmm. for which he wrote that song that that has been recorded since then. Mm -hmm. Um, It does not list another... uh, Well, there's an invitation to a march. That was 1960. Maybe somehow that's the one they meant. Um, Maybe that got into these notes here because uh, uh, those are the, those are two shows, plays that I see in, incidental music for. But anyway, I just wanted to share those notes because I thought they were <laughs> amazing in, in historical context. So um, I was mm-hmm. I, I, I Googled this quickly while you were uh, before we started recording when you mentioned that you wanted to talk about this and it 
brought up a uh, what they're calling on YouTube a rare West Side Story original Broadway footage of Maria and Tonight with Carol Lawrence and Larry Kurt. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm sure that you've seen it, Michael, being the scholar of West Side Story. There but. is also, um, yes, yeah, someone put together, it may still be on YouTube, as a sort of a compilation of all of the footage that exists of the original production. Uh, some of it's synced up to uh, the cast album or... Or in one case, uh, I think music from the soundtrack because it, it fit better. And there's, uh, and then as well as that, so there's some actual silent color footage from the original production, uh, including "I Feel Pretty," which is kind of great because we've got Marilyn Cooper in there as well, and mm-hmm. it's just wonderful to see uh, Carol Lawrence dancing in the number. She danced quite a bit uh, in the section where the girls are singing and uh, a little bit of Cheetah Rivera. And, uh, but then they also have um, other things like when they did cool on, I think it was the Ed Sullivan show. Uh, they have that. And then tonight from the Ed Sullivan show as well with the, with Larry and, and Carol Lawrence. But uh, so there's that as well as footage actually shot on stage. And it's, too bad there isn't more of it, but but any little scraps of that that we have are just amazing. Let's put out a challenge to our listeners, uh, speaking of Ed Sullivan, and that is the fact that um, many of the Ed Sullivan um, sequences with Broadway have shown up, and uh, and you can find them here, there, and everywhere. But the one that never seems to show up is Not On Your Nelly, uh, a song from <laughs> Darling of the Day, a 1968 musical. And uh, supposedly it was broadcast, but somehow it got lost in the shuffle. And um, even the powers that be that control the Ed Sullivan show, that um, if you're nice to them, they'll let you see Shelley Berman in a family affair and what have you. Uh, can't find not on your Nelly. If anybody has it out there, let us know. All right. Of course, you can find our contact information in the show, uh, the show notes at broadwayradio.com. So... Um I wanted to let our listeners know that uh, right now we are um, recording on a Sunday morning. It's uh, 10 a.m. In, in the eastern part of the United States uh, when we, re- we typically record about 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. Uh, and we have a number of listeners from all over the world that are joined us uh, on our Zoom call. And they are, uh, you know, seeing how the sausage is made. I don't know if that's if, if the right. I love uh, that expression. <laughs> but if you would like to get that behind the scenes uh, look here, you can join us if you go to broadway.com slash uh, broadwayradio.com slash Patreon or patreon.com slash broadwayradio. You'll be able to sign up and join us uh, backstage and take a listen and support Broadway Radio. And we really appreciate everybody who has uh, done this. So it is uh, Mother's Day. Mm-hmm. And uh, Peter, you suggested that we uh, talk about our favorite mothers in shows. So uh, who are some of the, your favorite mothers? Well, certainly I think the best of them all is actually called Mother. We don't know her by any other name, and that's Mother <laughs> in Ragtime. Now, granted, um, it was Mr. Dr. O's creation, but certainly uh, seeing Mother on stage in Ragtime is quite an experience. I mean, really, when you think of it, 1906, and this woman who was left alone, her husband decided to take this trip, and here's this 
little baby in the backyard and it's a black baby. I mean, so many times people say, what will the neighbors think? What would the neighbors think that she takes in this black baby and this, the mother <clears throat> that she makes sure that the mother isn't prosecuted. She has such compassion. Um, it, it's, it's amazing when you, when you really think of it. And um <sighs> As And as much credit as we have to give to Dr. O, we certainly have to give to Lynn Ahrens for one of the great 11 o'clock ballads of all time. And that's back to before, of course. And it's it distills what happens in that section of the book so well. It really is a masterpiece in itself. So thanks to Mr. Dr. O, thanks to Ms. Ahrens, and um, thanks to certainly Marin Massey, who created it and did it so galvanizingly wonderful. I can still see her center stage. It's hard to believe this is already 22 years ago, hmm. but, um, but nevertheless it is. And uh, an amazing, amazing performance and an amazing song in an amazing show. But the character of Mother that first comes to mind is definitely Mother. Michael, how about you? I just want to say I think that's a great first choice because yeah. she's such an archetypal mother. Uh, and as you said, even having that as her, as really the name of the character, or she's archetypal in the way that we would, I guess, want uh, every mother to be just so loving and so wonderful. But on the other end of the spectrum, maybe oh. I can start with <laughs> Rose and Gypsy. Sure. <laughs> Uh, where you have uh, someone who, uh, I guess, her life experiences uh, as a child um, have damaged her to the point where she's extremely, extremely obsessive and aggressive in terms of trying to get her own girls into show business, whether they like it or not. Uh, and that, you know, she actually winds up being successful in in that respect, but at a at a great cost, <laughs> a great personal cost, I would say. Um, I it's funny when when James mentioned this theme, or was it Peter? I'm sorry, it's it Peter. <laughs> well, well, anyway, I, there weren't like a tremendous number that immediately leapt to mind uh, of mothers, memorable mothers in shows, uh, plays, or musicals, plays and musicals, but. Then I, the more I thought about it, of course, I came up with quite a few examples, and she certainly is. Uh, the The role has been described as, uh, well, I, I guess maybe she's, it's been described as the Medea or the Lady Macbeth or mm -hmm, <laughs> of sure. musical theater. It's mm -hmm. it's just an incredibly rich role, and and I actually just recently was reading. Um, discussion online somewhere of various interpretations of Rose by various different artists and uh, and you know people have their own personal likes and dislikes but also there seems to be a a, a great variation on, in terms of what people feel the role should be uh, as regardless of how it's played I mean what qualities need to be brought out and people are uh, one 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 question was um, are we supposed to think that Rose ever actually tried to make it in show business herself? Um, she says a couple of things that make it sound like she maybe did. Um, she says, uh, what does she say at the end? She says something like, I was, I was born too soon and started too late. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Is that the line? Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, she's not very specific as to how far she may or may not have gotten herself as an actual performer. So I guess that's open to interpretation as well. Well, but- it doesn't have to be open to interpretation because there's a magnificent book called Mama Rose's Turn by Carolyn Quinn um, that uh, is all about Rose, needless to say. Uh, by the way, Carolyn Quinn told me that she definitely knows you're not supposed to call that lady Mama Rose <clears throat> because that never shows up in the show. Madam Rose, yes, Mama, yes, but never Mama Rose. Those two words don't come together. And you can really tell an amateur from a pro when um, when somebody uses the term. Um, so anyway, it's a terrific book, wonderfully written. And I really um, urge anybody who's interested in this show and who isn't to uh, to get it. Um, and you will find out a lot about Rose uh, <laughs> growing up. Uh, there's even the, the research was incredible. There's even an essay she wrote when she was in the seventh grade. I mean, that's how specific this book is. So I urge um, everybody to find Mama Rose's turn. The full uh, the full title of this is Mama Rose's turn: The True Story of America's Most Notorious Stage Mother. Mm-hmm. It sounds yeah. like a <laughs> Yeah, I've read I've read some excerpts from that. But what is the short answer? Did she herself try to and and do some performing as a as a young person? Um, not very seriously, uh, okay. but yes, um, not not with the um, <clears throat> with the incredible zest and uh, determination that she did with the kids. But um, yeah, she she certainly toyed with it, um, to say the least. Um, but. Uh, yeah, what's really interesting to me is that year, 1959, that we first met Rose on stage, there were two other mothers of note that year. And um, one was uh, the queen, Agravain, in Once Upon a Mattress, um, who's also a tough cookie, um, but ameliorating them is a stepmother. And that, of course, is Maria in The Sound of Music, who uh, was substantially nicer. And um, people criticize The Sound of Music for a number of reasons. But again, if, if, watching the movie, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, which really is a terrific picture, uh, no matter what anybody says, um, Julie Andrews does a wonderful job in showing you exactly where um, the care and consideration and how she, she makes the right decision at every turn is really quite wonderful. Now, ironically, of course, um, as many know, um, <laughs> Rose and Maria went, toe-to-toe in the Tony um, <laughs> race that year. And uh, surprisingly, Mary Martin got it for um, Maria. You would think that Ethel Merman would get it for Gypsy. And I don't, uh, almost everybody who's played Gypsy since then has gotten a Tony. But anyway, um, it is interesting they went toe-to-toe. And you would think that uh, the more forceful um, character would uh, wind up uh, victorious. But it's the gentle one who uh, won that time. I uh, I mean, obviously, Peter's right about the misappellation of Mama Rose, but actually, but that's to our point in this question. I think the point being that she is so we think of her so much in her capacity as a mother, uh, you know, for good or for bad, that. Uh, it seems natural to call her that. And, and, and also the, uh, you know, her daughters do call her mama many times during the show. Oh, indeed. Uh, so, uh, if mama so, was married. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and, and your mention of sound and music is interesting to me because I was thinking there are several musicals we can think of that have surrogate mothers mm-hmm. as their, uh, as their leading women. And I, 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 would say that counts. I mean, she, she does eventually become 
the children's mother in the sense that she marries their father. Mm -hmm. uh, but then two others uh, that <laughs> great musicals that leap immediately to mind are The King and I, Anna mm -hmm. in The King and I, and Mame. Mame. Well, yeah. Anna really is the mother of that of Louis. Oh, true. Yeah, but I meant you know, you know what I meant. Uh, all those <laughs> those sixty kids or whatever, however <laughs> many they're supposed to. Be. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, by the way, I should add another nineteen fifty nine mother, even though the show ran uh, only two weeks, and that's um, Juno uh, from uh, the musical version of Juno and the Paycock. And again, the line comes from Sean O'Casey's play, but at the end of the play, um, when um, Juno's daughter is uh, pregnant and um, her husband is, uh, well, her boyfriend uh, is nowhere to be found, and um, she does hope that the guy who's always had unrequited love for her will um, marry her. And when I saw Darlin' Juno, as it was, it was called in New Haven at Long Wharf, I can still, I could take you to the precise moment in the stage where Victor Garber playing the guy who's all show long has been saying, oh, Mary, give me one kind word. That's all I want. I love you. You're the best. You know, all that kind of stuff. And I, when she tells him that, yes, she will marry him, but it, she's going to have another child, I can still see him whirling around and saying, oh, Mary, have you sunk as low as that? I, I will never forget it because I didn't know it was going to happen in the show. I hadn't seen Juno in the Paycock at that point in time. So anyway, Juno says to her a line something like, um, this boy, uh, your child will grow up very well because he'll have something better than a mother and a father. He'll have two mothers, meaning, of course, um, the mother herself um, and and she. So um, it, Juno is a very, very fine score, uh, Mark Blitzstein, and it really is a shame that it only ran two weeks mm -hmm. um, because uh, it deserves substantially more. But uh, that's all there was. Once again, Goddard Liebeson, God love him, mm -hmm. um, recorded the score, even though um, it was clear that the show was not going to run. It probably was done at the end of the first week, and probably the closing notice was already up. But God love him for doing it, because it's quite a recording. Has somebody dug this uh, dug Juno out uh, in the last it, 10 it was, years or so? It was on course. On course. It was? Yeah. Okay. The Vineyard did a production a long time That's ago. That's what too. I was thinking yeah. about, the Vineyard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, Michael, you were saying about Anna and the King and I, and your second one I missed. What was that? Oh, well, Mame. Mame. Oh, yeah. Mame. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And um, just so we don't uh, forget about the plays, there are some obvious choices Mother Courage and Her Children which is kind of, I mean, she's, that's an epic tale and she's almost in every woman in, in many senses. So that's an amazing thing. Then, uh, Medea, which just <laughs> recently, yeah, you know, I don't mean to, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, therapy there. I mean, we're including the, 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 obviously the good and the bad here. Um, and, and as we all know, uh, frequently the more troubled, uh, characters are more interesting, and that's why people write plays about them and musicals. But uh, Medea, which just got a, a, a modern adaptation, unfortunately, I missed that was done at BAM with uh, Rose Byrne and Bobby Cannavale. Peter, did you get to see it? Oh, yeah, it was quite good. Um, yeah. it, it, it shouldn't have been it's called Medea. Not Medea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, uh, it bore very uh, little relationship to uh, the actual play. But um, 
but still as as theater it was extraordinarily effective extraordinarily effective so um if uh you know and on mother's day we often celebrate grandmothers too and um i can certainly think of two that uh, should be celebrated and one is birth um from Pippin, who sings that marvelous yeah. No Time at All song. Um, she's a wonderful grandmother to that boy and gives him extraordinarily good advice that um, that it goes by in just no time at all. I mean, <laughs> I was in my 20s when I saw the tryout of Pippin at um, the National Theater, I'm sorry, the Kennedy Center in Washington. And um, there I am hearing, you know, the, the troubles and fears of 66 years. And, you know, that was so far away. <laughs> now 66 sounds young to me. Right. So um, <laughs> um, Madame Armfeldt's a very nice grandmother as well. Um, she's very concerned about her daughter and she's essentially become the mother. What with Desiree um, going here, there and everywhere, uh, packing and unpacking the luggage. So um, so she's worthwhile as as well and those are two very nice grandmothers that immediately come to mind and there's there's the one in allegro yeah right right um the grandmother in allegro uh, plays a very important part and and her death is certainly something that uh is given uh, some uh, time but it is interesting how so many of the mothers um in these shows uh are, are not so nice um at times i mean i was surprised to see that so many of them were as i say tough cookies um i didn't see a mother's kisses um the musical that richard adler wrote um that was supposed to make b author a star you know usually what happens is somebody gets a supporting role and does extraordinarily well and then gets a show uh written for him or her and uh, this is what was supposed to happen to beatrice author because there she was having the part of Yenta in Fiddler <laughs> on the Roof and then uh, Vera Charles in Mame, uh, tremendous success. And now it's time for her to break out. I mean, Fiddler's 64, uh, Mame is 66. Here we are, 68. And now it's time for uh, Beatha to have her starring vehicle in A Mother's Kisses. And um, it didn't quite work out. But this was another one of those mother who, uh, if not hell on wheels, certainly hell on legs and, um, definitely a, a, a very tough cookie, but the tough cookie thing. Yeah. That goes to what I was saying before. I, I'm sure if we made a list of famous fathers in plays and musicals, that a lot of them would be tough cookies or, and, or troubled in some way. And we'll do that uh, in five weeks. <laughs> <laughs> For Father's Day. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh well, you know, look at um Long Day's Journey and Tonight, uh Death of a Salesman, both of which also have really, really wonderful, rich mother characters. That the mother in Long Day's Journey and Tonight is such a tragic figure, needless to say, uh she's in the grip of this addiction. And I always love the fact that the play does start out with just a little bit uh, of, t for a little bit of time, we see uh, what this family might have been like if that hadn't become such a, such a horrendous factor in their lives. They, they actually seem happy and seem to love each other and seem to be getting along for a bit before uh, we learn that, 
you know, what we learn the history and what's still going on. Uh, and Death of a Salesman, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that I just recently watched the video of that wonderful Broadway production with uh, that came from the Goodman Theater, but uh, then to Broadway with Brian Dennehy and Elizabeth France. And Linda Lohman is really, uh, you know, arguably uh, or, not, or not arguably the rock of that family. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. She, it would probably have completely disintegrated by this point, if not for her holding it together um, in the, in the wonderful, like everyday way that she does. Uh, so I've always thought that that's one of the great female characters. And of course, of course, of course, Amanda and the glass menagerie. I directed a production of that years ago and I was amazed by uh, the depths of that character, even even within this really prescribed world that those characters live in, this this tiny apartment, and their world is so little in so many ways. But the depths of feeling of that character, she tries to uh, she's so concerned about the future of both of her children, but especially her daughter, her. Uh, crippled daughter, which is the word she finally uses for her at the end. And, and if, of course, if you know the actual history of the actual character, Tennessee Williams' sister, it's, it's really pretty tragic. Um, but Amanda is just, she just wants to make sure that Laura will be okay and, and that she, she doesn't want her to be living at home for her entire life. And she desperately wants to somehow find her someone to love and go off and be a, a wife and a mother. And that's one of the greatest, greatest mother characters in all of theater. I think all of literature, just really beautiful. Another one from a hit play of the 40s, uh, which became a musical in the 70s, uh, not nearly as successful, but um, if you were lucky enough uh, six mm. years ago to see I Remember Mama by the Transport Group and Barbara Andres uh, playing Mama um, in a, a spectacularly uh, <laughs> natural performance. That's what made it so wonderful. Um, 10 women were in it and they've had to play 25 roles and it was set in a very atypical set. It was in the Judson gym. Um, there were just a million tables in the gym and we, the house yeah. lights were up for the whole show and we all sat around the perimeter <laughs> of the um, gym and I could even see Jackie Hoffman crying um, at this. Uh, Jackie Hoffman, think about it, um, watching this wonderful mother just so wonderful solving all the problems and taking uh, destiny into her hands when her daughter wants to be a writer. Um, she knows that she can do it and she does an extraordinary thing to make it happen. And um, so that's really quite a good character. And while Lee Ullman wasn't as successful as Barbara Andres um, in the musical version, the musical version wasn't successful either. Um, I, I do think that, um, it was uh, a sad property, uh, ultimately a beautiful production, by the way. Um, sets and costumes were magnificent, but of course, um, it, the show itself uh, didn't score for whatever reason. And um, But boy, if you saw that one uh, there, you'd be very impressed. You know, another mother who's um, a difficult one, needless to say, is the Shogun's mother in Pacific Overtures. Uh, <laughs> she's another one who wants uh, her son to take action and uh, being the sheltered, uh, pampered uh, person that so many people in royalty are, um, he 
doesn't feel like he has to do anything. Uh, he's been so used to having uh, life handed to him mm -hmm. so nicely. But uh, in the magnificent song, Chrysanthemum Tea, which was only half written when I saw the Boston tryout. Uh, so then when I caught up with it in... Um, in Washington at the Kennedy Center uh, some weeks later, it was really amazing uh, to see that full song that we now know, uh, beautifully, beautifully done. And um, so even though this is uh, a tough lady, she certainly gets a, a good song and she does let us remember that sometimes <laughs> tough action has to be taken when tough action has to be taken. <laughs> We've all had... Um well, I shouldn't say we've all had, but many of us have had uh, adoptive mothers, whether it be friends' mothers or mm -hmm. aunts and uncles mm -hmm. and things like that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I often think of mm -hmm. uh, Nettie Fowler in Carousel sure. and how she uh -huh. is the mother figure in in that show. Um, uh, any experiences like that for you too? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, when I was uh, teaching high school, the librarian, a, a wonderful woman named Ruth Leppy, um, really became a surrogate mother to me, um, because she, uh, very much believed in me and encouraged me to continue writing and all that. So, uh, so she was, uh, definitely a, an important, uh, part of my life. And, um, <laughs> I, I, uh, we had so many good times together. And one of my favorite experiences with her is when she was living, um, at one of those, um, senior assisted living facilities and I went to see her and, um, and she had just moved there and she was showing me around the place and everybody was saying, Oh, is this your mm. son? And she said, no, it's my friend. <laughs> and, it really astonished people because I was about 30 years younger than she. And the point is, yes, every now and then sons have to show up and be with their mothers. <laughs> it's a duty. But the fact she said to me later, she said, people thought I must be this interesting person that somebody 30 years younger would come and see me. You know, especially she was living in California. I was in New York. I mean, really, she said, I really got a sense of stature there as a result of your visit. Um, so I was just so proud that I could do that for her because she had always been so wonderful to me. I have, uh, a, a story, but, but in my case, the ages, it was the opposite situation. I have, uh, I'm still in touch as recently as just a few days ago with my junior high school English teacher, Stephanie Andrus. And I, I, I think the only reason I don't think of her as a surrogate mother is because she's less than 10 years older than me. But certainly, uh, I, I think many teachers and many good teachers function in that, in that way. Uh, we were just talking recently. She said, do you remember when I brought you guys to see 1776 on Broadway? Uh, and I said, I didn't go. <laughs> I can't remember now what, you know, I hope it was a good reason, but I, I did not join the class trip to see 1776 with the original cast on Broadway. <laughs> mm, but she mm, did wonderful mm. things like that. I, I was on a, um, I was on a public service uh, commercial about uh, an anti-pollution commercial uh, for uh, Channel 5 and uh, Stephanie 
drove me into the city with a, another student and we hung out for the day and we went and filmed it and then she drove me home. So she's someone who uh, I would give, definitely give the nod to as a surrogate mother for me, even though I, I never thought of her that way until James just said this. <laughs> um, another classic one uh, is Mrs. Bennett from um, First Impressions, the musical version of Pride and Prejudice. Uh, Hermione Gingle played the part, and um, I didn't see the show, but the cast album reveals that uh, she uh, she was terrific. Uh, she even has a song called "As Long as There's a uh, There's a Mother," and indicating that things will happen. Uh, she does get one of the most delicious um, lyrics. And that is in, in the opening song, which is called Five Daughters. And it's all about, the, not unlike Tevye, you know, having five daughters, um, he's, he's worried about uh, what's going to happen to them. Well, so is Mrs. Bennett, uh, because she doesn't have that much money or class or prestige. And um, how is she going to marry these people off to people who are uh, at least a, a notch up on the social ladder? And um, so she says at one point uh, about conceiving these children five tries five misses yeah <laughs> it's a good line oh my goodness that's funny and that was uh you said a musical version of pride and prejudice or yeah yeah first impressions was in fact first, the original title because uh that Paul um, Paul yeah, Gordon, Gordon also had right. had one so I was was I, I wanted to clarify that you were talking about the other one you know, I think that was 1959, too. Um, big year for mothers. Um, so, <laughs> big year. Wow. Um, even though that one uh, didn't run very long. You know, um, so many times we do see mothers who are um, who want more uh, money and social position. And we have to give credit to a mother who is very satisfied with her life, just as it is, even though her husband has bigger plans. And that's uh, Gidala and the Rothschilds. Who's um, who's very satisfied living in one room, and um, her husband says, "My wife will never have to look at her husband with um, apologetic eyes um, because he has greater ambitions." And the wonderful thing about this these ambitions, he is not just out to make a fortune for himself. He is doing it so he can liberate the Jews. He knows that money is power and that if indeed he can really become um, a tremendous mogul and magnate, that he can change the way Jews are treated in uh, Frankfurt. And he does so. So it has more to do with that. But she's, it's just very refreshing to see a woman who uh, says, I'm happy in one room and later gets a song where she says, we have enough. You know, and, and they do. They have enough for them. But again, he has um, bigger ambitions uh, and more lofty ambitions. That's why I always hate when people say, oh, the Rothschilds is simply about uh, making money. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. It's oh. about uh, getting the power to change things. If we're just about that. I remember people approached me years ago um, to talk about a musical version of Neiman Marcus. Um, they were calling it Minding the Store because it was a book by that. <laughs> and um, and they wanted a musical of it. And um, the thing was, you really couldn't get behind the people because all of it was about being successful. And you could see them getting excited when they made more money that day than the day before. It, it's not the same. You know, watching people get rich is just not the same as watching people get rich so that they can improve conditions. So that's the difference. I was thinking that uh, two recent well, one fairly recent and one very recent 
musical. Both have wonderful, wonderfully complex mother characters. One is next to normal, and the mm. other, the mm. other is jagged little pill, uh, yeah. in which Elizabeth Stanley, uh, until this crisis, was giving an amazing performance. I hope that somehow that show is able to reopen somewhere with her in the, in it because she is just incredible in it. So, um, Peter, I was going to transition to, into a new section to talk about some questions that we've got from listeners. Uh, you had mentioned uh, Ethel Merman in, as, um, <laughs> as Rose, uh, and one of our listeners, Pat Payne, uh, asked us the question, we all associate certain actors with the role that they originated, Ethel and Rose, uh, Robert Preston in The Music Man, Patty and Evita. So, uh, Michael and Peter, what? Who of today's store, stars? Let me try that one more time. Who of today's stars <laughs> would you like to take back in time to play one of the great roles? Oh, uh, well, certainly when we think of Barbara Streisand talking about making a movie, a Gypsy, um, and a lot of people say, "Well, she's just too old," but uh, certainly there would have been a time. I would like to see Donna Murphy play the part too. I think Donna Murphy mm. is our most valuable player these days. Um, I, I wish she'd do more. Uh, certainly whenever she gives a performance, I'm there. I mean, I didn't have to go see Hello, Dolly with her, but there was no way I was going to miss that performance, uh, which of all the dollies I've seen, and I'm sure I've seen a dozen at this point in time, um, <clears throat> was the quirkiest and most distinctive. I mean, there's a certain way to play Dolly, and uh, most everybody plays it that way. She played it in a completely different way and was consistent and made it work. So Donna Murphy is uh, one, uh, and we're very lucky to have seen Donna Murphy in a show that, after all, originated in 1964. So, uh, But Streisand would have been really good at um, as, as Rose somewhere in time, and um, as every second passes, those rumors that she's going to do the movie seem far, far, far less likely. Hmm. Michael, well, I, I actually have another Donna Murphy example, and, and we don't have to bring her back in time because she could absolutely still do it. I, I may have mentioned this, but I saw her in the audience at uh, Feinstein 54 Below. I can't remember what the show was at the moment, but she was sitting right next to me at the next table and we went over to her afterwards. I, I know her slightly and I said, hi. And I, I don't remember what made me say it at that exact moment, but I said to her, I know you don't have full control over this, but it would be so wonderful if you could play MAME at some point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she said something like, um, we're working on it. <laughs> it's on the list or something like that. Cause she um, it's often discussed that for some reason, it's very hard to find um, performers who seem to have all the qualities necessary for that role. Uh, some people who have the voice don't have the right personality or, uh, or, you know, they're just some combination because it's an interesting combination of qualities that go into Mame Dennis, I think. But Donna to me has them all. She can be very glamorous. She can be hilariously funny. She has a great mm -hmm. voice. She can dance. And so I think um, that I've always said that I think that the property is somewhat problematic for revival these days. But if they do do it, 
uh, whether in encores or whatever, uh, I would just think that she would kill in that role. <laughs> you know, encores is a very good idea for me because a lot of people feel it wouldn't be successful today for a number of reasons. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, Donna has done Donna has done several encores, and uh, you know, obviously the. Sure. The pressure is off in terms of uh, committing to a long run, and mm-hmm. and so it would be absolutely perfect. I wouldn't be surprised if um, they would get to it soon. You know, when when and if things are back to normal. Yeah, when and if. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. E- yeah. E- even if they were to do it as one of those uh, very shishi fundraisers, right? You know, mm-hmm. Like Little Shop started. Uh, right. Was it? Was it Little Shop that they did in the fundraiser, or was it Sunday in the Park they did as the fundraiser, or did they do them both? Or both, I think. Both, yeah. Uh, and then, uh, of course, Sunday turned into a longer run. Uh, so that certainly is uh, something we could all look forward to when theaters reopen. Um, when theaters reopen, yeah, that's, uh, that's a it loaded. Sure is. That's a quite the statement we had uh one of our listeners had sent us in a uh a video from the uh guthrie theater the artistic director uh joseph hodge uh recorded a couple of minute statement about you know what the guthrie is doing and looking forward to reopening and not that they have any solid plans right now but they talked about how necessary theater has been throughout the history of man and uh i think that we're seeing this uh we all appreciate i mean the the kelly o'harris and king and i from broadway hd free this weekend that's it's really wonderful and all the other things that are happening right now to um to kind of give us a glimpse back to uh productions on stage but it doesn't quite replace it does it now no, no. of course not no yeah so uh uh I'm really thankful that so many of these uh large nonprofits uh like the Guthrie and Lincoln Center Theater and Roundabout and things like that are able to um um you know put messages of hope out there but there's so many organizations that are struggling all throughout the world right now that are small little theater not? companies uh, and we have to see what happens on the on the other side. So, uh, Peter, you have seen so many small productions. You know, I, I think of you know you've been to Alaska and you've been to. <laughs> I, I think you said uh, aspects of love in Denmark or where? Where did? Where did, did, did Holland. Uh, Holland. <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, uh, how do you choose, uh, you know, what you're seeing, uh, when you're in these out of the way places? Well, um, the tail wags the dog. Um, when Scott Miller announced he was doing the nervous set, another 1959 musical, though I don't believe there are any mothers in it because it's all about beatniks, uh, the forerunners to hippies. Um, whoa, um, uh, right this way, your plane is waiting. I'm telling you, I couldn't get there fast enough. And to this day, even though that's 16 years ago, 
is the most valuable theatrical pilgrimage I have ever made to see the nervous set, uh, which ran 12 performances on Broadway. So yes, if it's something I really want to see, I do make an effort to go. Uh, frankly, um, seeing aspects in love in Holland was not a case of that. It was a case of, um, my girlfriend and I saying, let's go to, um, Amsterdam. But, um, and while I was there, of course, I always see what's going on, but yes, uh, if something is, uh, playing that I really, really, really want to see. I make every effort to get there. I'm, I was so busy a couple of years ago when some theater in New Hampshire was doing We Have Always Lived in the Castle, a title that may be very familiar to many because it was a very famous Shirley Jackson novel, but it was made into a Broadway play by Hugh Wheeler, who later became much more famous for writing the books to um, A Little Night Music and Sweeney Todd. Uh, and at the last minute, um, I just could not go and it, it broke my heart because this was a show that only ran a few performances on Broadway, but still you Wheeler, Shirley Jackson, uh, it sounded good to me, but yes, um, that's what I do. If it's something I really want to see, um, something that slipped through my fingers during my lifetime, it seems to be the one, uh, thing that really, uh, drives me. I'm always interested in seeing shows that I knew were happening when I was growing up in Boston that did not try out in Boston, that only played New York, that um, I was certainly aware about. I would read the reviews the next morning, all that kind of business. So um, I went to Providence, Rhode Island to see Terrence McNally's first original play and things that go bump in the night, uh, because really, uh, who gets a chance to see that? So that's what it really comes down to. And yes, I will get in my car or I will get on a plane if it's something that um, is, is really that important to me. So it's, so far, theater in 46 states. I'm missing Montana, Idaho, Hawaii, and South Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michael, you have traveled, uh, I know, at least up and down the East Coast. Uh, uh, how about you when you pick things yeah. to go see? Yeah, I guess just for mostly for logistic reasons. I, uh, I have seen some things in more far-flung places like L.A. and uh, et cetera. But in recent years, I've been more limited to DC and Boston. Uh, and Lord knows, I mean, with, with everything that there is to see in New York already. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and plus, uh, you know, I, I mean, I have had a day job at least until this crisis. <laughs> um, so I, it was mostly, uh, weekends when I would be available. So I could just, um, financially just, uh, get a round trip bus ticket to either place for like 40 bucks uh, and then go. Uh, I had a, f I have a friend in Boston and another friend in DC, so I didn't have to pay to stay. So <laughs> uh, if you're getting the idea that I'm cheap, you're, you're, probably, <laughs> you're, probably, you're probably understanding it correctly. <laughs> you maximize um, the theatrical impact of your dollar. You're not cheap. Yeah. <laughs> and I have seen so many, I, actually it's been a while uh, since I saw anything in Boston. I would like to, to try to get back to something there when they start doing stuff again. But I, um, I guess the last show I saw in DC was that wonderful, wonderful production of spring awakening at the roundhouse theater. It was so, so good. Uh, and those are two really, two really great theater cities. So I'm happy that they're both within spitting distance. <laughs> I did make, um, 
a trip to Phoenix where I saw Minnie's Boys, even though I had seen it on Broadway, and uh, it was substantially better. Um, a director, this was 1988, a director just starting out named Michael Barnard um, has really become a force in Phoenix. I'm delighted and I'm not the least bit surprised. I also saw His Children of Eden a few years later, and um, it's wonderful how successful he's been there. And he really is now, I think, um, essentially the king of, of Phoenix theater and uh, has been given the reins of its um, most prestigious theater and uh, deservedly so. It was um, an incredible uh, production and um, it was so good. I wound up you know, in tears saying, my God, there's somebody in Phoenix, Arizona who truly understands what a Broadway musical is. And people around me were getting nervous because why are you crying in a musical about the Marx Brothers? I mean, you know, <laughs> but uh, it was so moving to me to see something so uh, terrific. And there's another mother who's rather difficult, isn't it? Um, uh, mini marks, um, mm-hmm. not as severe as Rose. And a lot of people call that a criticism of the show that um, she just didn't have as much bite as Rose. And therefore um, she was just more of an, um, uh, an annoying nag um, more than a force of nature. And, and of course the fact that Shelley Winters was playing, it was um, not an asset. She was not good at all in the role, not at all. And if you read, um, Louis J. Stadlin's book, Acting Foolishly, uh, you will find out he is no fan of Shelley Winters. And um, it's, it's quite a, um, not just, <laughs> he's no fan of the way she performed, but um, uh, everything else too. But uh, it, yeah, really, Carolyn Payne, that was her name, the woman playing it in Phoenix, and she was magnificent, magnificent. Here I am talking about her 32 years later, a community theater performance. Um, another one, by the way, um, adapted from a, a famous play, and that, of course, is Lena Younger in um, A Raisin in the Sun originally, and then the musical Raisin. And um, Virginia Capus won a Tony for it, and uh, quite deservedly so. Uh, it was quite a wonderful performance uh, as this Earth Mother type, and um, she had a wonderful song called A Whole Lot of Sunshine, which she sang to a plant. And, um, and while we did have somebody singing to a plant um, about 10 years earlier, <laughs> when uh, a non-mother, uh, Daisy Gamble, uh, sang to um, her plants, Hurry, It's Lovely Up Here, uh, a wonderful song, one of the great charm songs of all time. Uh, Lena's Younger's was um, more plaintive. And, um, and, and again, uh, I don't think many people were surprised when she uh, won the uh, Tony that year. I almost mentioned uh, Minnie's Boys as well. And the reason I thought of it was that unbelievably beautiful song, Mama, A Rainbow, uh, that was written about her. And I, I would say I, I really liked Minnie's Boys when I got to see it at the York. I thought they did a wonderful production of it. And it was one of those, why did this fail? But Peter has given us one major reason, apparently why. Um, and I always thought, well, I'm glad this show exists, if only so that that song was written, because it's just the lyrics and the music are just so beautiful. And uh, I, uh, you know, I, I think it's a tribute to the song that it has survived. Being and, such then a yeah. and then some. And then some. It would have to rank in the top 10, maybe even the top five songs that have emerged from flops mm. that have been so revered. Mm. I mean, it comes up all the time. And here it is 
literally 50 years later. And in fact, it might even be 50 years to the day. In a sense, it is, because I remember the cast album said it was recorded on Mother's Day. I'm, I'm, I, it may not have been um, exactly uh, May 10th, but nevertheless, it was recorded on Mother's Day. But it's 50 years now yeah. since Minnie's Boys. And yet, Mama a Rainbow is mentioned, <laughs> I would say, at least every six weeks in my life. So, um, so, so there. Um, you know, a, another mother uh, worth mentioning, even though she isn't a mother for most of the show, is uh, Eve in The Apple Tree. And um, one of the things is in the apple tree is the fact that neither Adam nor Eve knows exactly what has happened, that um, what is this strange being that has come into their life? (laughs) And Adam has a fabulous song uh, talking about the fact that it's a fish. It must be a fish because it surrounds itself with water every chance it gets. Um, and um, also, it's, it's wonderful when he starts talking about it's a fish, and you catch on when he says, though on occasion it says goo, a terrific lyric. You know, So that's when you realize it's a baby. But there's Eve singing this beautiful ballad with a rather funny um, title because uh, she's singing to the baby, go to sleep, whatever you are. And I mean, that's, you know, that's not terribly sentimental, is it? But still, it's a beautiful, beautiful ballad and beautifully orchestrated by Eddie Sauter, one of our greatest uh, orchestrators, even though we didn't do that many shows. But um, it's even the theme that's used to introduce the show. Um, there's not an overture, but uh, you do hear this wonderful music played under, and that's Go to Sleep, Whatever You Are. So um, it's a very tender song. Um, I also like... Um, Rosie Bryce in Funny Girl, um, you know, who who certainly stands up for her daughter and is very tender with her daughter when her daughter's going through tough times in the second act with her husband and what happens. Um, when I, uh, the first road show I ever saw in Boston was Bye Bye Birdie, where um, Kay Medford played Mae Peterson, not a nice mother and certainly a controlling one, uh, a very difficult mother uh, who certainly didn't want her son to get married at all because then she'd lose him and Kay Medford was hilarious beyond belief. And as excited as I was having seen, I can get a few wholesale in Boston that Barbara Streisand was going to be doing funny girl. When I saw also starring Kay Medford, I was just as excited because uh, she was so good in bye bye birdie. So it was quite wonderful to see her um, being a very more doting and um, supportive mother in Funny Girl, and um, it was really quite a wonderful performance. And, of course, she got to do it in uh, the movie version as well, and I think got an Oscar nomination. Hmm. I think she did. <laughs> I, wanted to, uh, I wanted to end with three other characters that we don't primarily think of as mothers, maybe. One is Julie Jordan in Carousel. Uh-huh. Another is, this is a stretch, but uh, Amy, a.k.a. Rosabella in The Most Happy Fella. Uh, I mean, she only conceives halfway through the show, so right. <laughs> you know. But uh, but the fact that she does conceive is certainly a you know a big point in that show. And then the last one I wanted to mention, and in a way as to you know avoid a spoiler, maybe even after all these decades, is shall I say Joanna's mother in Sweeney Todd? 
Uh, uh, yeah yeah she's had a tough time but in terms of surrogate mothers i'd also like to mention maggie flynn um a 1968 musical i did not see it Mm. but but uh, the original cast album which uh, i'm not saying it's a terrific album but what i will say is that shirley jones's songs are very nice Mm. and uh, very on target for what a nice surrogate mother should be running an orphanage she's certainly no miss hannigan and um and uh, but lovely lovely songs and i really do believe that if i had seen the show i would have liked it because her opening song is just so winning and so wonderful that i really would have gone with it i am sure so i'm sorry i missed it um abigail van nostren who uh, runs samuel french uh said it was her first show and she's always had great affection for it. And they represent it. And by the way, anybody out there, when the time comes that we're doing shows, and I do check the Samuel French website for this, anybody who's doing Maggie Flynn, look for me in the audience, no matter where you are. <laughs> That's great. All right. So uh, I guess that kind of wraps it up for today. Do you guys have anything else you want to throw in? Uh, well, let's hope that, um, Nellie Forbush turns out to be a nice mother too. Um, <laughs> again, Mary Martin, um, who gets the chance to, uh, be a stepmother. And, um, I hope that, uh, she's up for the challenge. I've always questioned the fact that, uh, Emil didn't say to her when he proposed, uh, you know, I have these two kids. Uh, <laughs> I think that's really a flaw in the show, but, um, I, I, think mary martin's um nelly would have done the job <laughs> yeah absolutely and i uh, i would mention again the one i just mentioned i i hope and i think that amy and Ro- amy slash rosabella in most happy fellow that she and tony will uh will be very happy with their child and their child will be very much loved uh considering all the uh angst and and all the drama that went into uh what brought them to that point but it really does seem at the end of that show it's such a wonderful story of forgiveness and love and uh it seems like genuinely like these people are going to be able to make it in those terms i I always like to think uh that they will (laughs) a mother doesn't have very much stage time uh, is the mother, Mrs. Darling and Peter Pan. Mm. And, oh, yeah. um, and yet what she does have is, is so, uh, very nice. And the first time I ever saw Peter Pan live was the 1979 revival, uh, with the extraordinary Sandy Duncan, but Beth Fowler played yeah. the role and I, she really made an impression. She had very little stage time, as I say. And, um, and of course there's another character she played that was a nice mother too. And that of course is Mrs. Potts of beauty and the beast. So, um, she does it very, very well. And of course she's about to be a mother mm. in uh, baby, mm. um, where, uh, she certainly did a terrific job as being a woman who late in life, um, had to be a mother. So, um, so Beth Fowler is really one of my favorite performers, and it's just wonderful um, whenever she's on stage. I definitely remember Beth in that Peter Pan. I remember she does, as you say, she does very little. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I think the only singing she does is a little of Tender Shepherd mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. at the very beginning. And I can still hear her mm-hmm. singing mm-hmm. that 
like it's a lovely song, and of course her voice is so beautiful that she took those few measures and made such an impression with with them in terms of the the music the musical quality, but also the emotion. Uh, so absolutely, I agree with her her and and with that as an example. Okay. So before we wrap up for today and get on to trivia, I would like to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayvideo.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to or find our podcast, you'll be able to find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayvideo.com, as well as links to some of the things that we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Well, the question was, what musical refers to Ethel Merman as Essel Merman? And uh, it's Out of This World, a 1950 musical by Cole Porter in a song called They Couldn't Compare to You, sung by the god Mercury, in which he says, after snitching Eve from Adam, I attended Call Me Madam and shortly began to nestle Essel Merman. Uh, Cole Porter needed to rhyme something with Nestle. <laughs> so he uh, stretched and did Essel Merman. Not a perfect rhyme, to say the least. Anyway, Rob Johnson was the first to get it, followed by Steve Bell, Tony Janicki, Brigadude, Mike Meany, Broadway's cutest couple, Doug Strassler and Alyssa Marr, <laughs> who hadn't answered in a while. I guess they've been too busy doing what comes naturally um, <clears throat> because, you know, they're not married yet, you know, so um, another year or maybe less. What's this I hear? Well, can't you guess? All right. Moving on. Michael Van Duzer, Greg Pavlak, Joanna Abizi, Robbie Roselle, Mark Miller, Robert Berger and Ingrid Gammerman all got this. Now, speaking of call me, madam, <laughs> this week's question, what show makes reference to call me, madam, Aida, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Guys and Dolls, The King and I, and South Pacific. Hmm. Okay, if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Peter, I assume you
my moon and my star. 